wisdom and compassion are the two great wings of the Dharma, of the Buddhist teachings. And we need to develop both on this flight of awakening. Without wisdom, we may have compassion for the suffering in the world, but if we don't have the insight or the understanding of the causes of that suffering, we won't really be able to effectively help alleviate it. So we need the wisdom to inform our compassionate action. We might also have a deep insight or understanding into the nature of things, into the causes of suffering. But if we, won't, if we don't have compassion, then we're not moved to act in response to it. So it's really these two in balance, which are the fulfillment of the spiritual path. So tonight I'd like to talk more about compassion, what it is, the wisdom that gives rise to it, and how we can manifest it in our practice, in our lives, how we can manifest it in the world. Now, as has been mentioned, compassion is that deep feeling in the heart that wants to alleviate the suffering of beings. It arises when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering. That's its proximate cause. When we're willing to come close to the suffering that's there, that's what gives rise to this feeling of compassion, coming close to our own suffering and to those of others. This is a very profound and also very difficult practice. It's not easy to do. Now, we may want to be compassionate and even feel that we often are, but it isn't always easy to open to the suffering that's there. Now, just as we don't like to be with our own pain, we don't necessarily always want to be with the pain of others. There are very strong tendencies in our minds, which you have probably noticed, that keep us defended, or keep us withdrawn, or indifferent and apathetic to the suffering that's there. So as an experiment, just to begin to get a feel for the dynamics of our own minds and our responses, Watch your mind the next time you're in a situation that brings you close to suffering. It might be as simple, although powerful, as pain in the body. You know, as you're sitting either in meditation or just through some circumstance in your life, how does the mind respond to pain in the body? Does it welcome it with open arms? 
How does it deal when we come close, when we really come close to emotional distress? There's a wide range of painful emotions, emotions which cause a lot of suffering. It might be discontent, it might be boredom, it might be rage, it might be jealousy, fear, anger, anxiety, loneliness. There are a lot of different emotions that are suffering. When we come close to this, to notice, well, what does the mind do with that? And what do we do as we become more and more aware of the tremendous suffering in the world? And we see so many images just on TV of you know the suffering of violence and starvation and endemic disease and it's really quite overwhelming. What happens? Do we feel uneasy in the face of these different kinds of suffering, whether it's our own or others? Do we withdraw from it? Do we deny it? Can we open to it? This is really the crux of the dilemma. One of my favorite stories, which told many times, but it so encapsulates the tendency in our mind to pull back from suffering, was a story told to me by a friend. My friend was telling the story about his grandfather and his father. So his grandfather and his father were driving in a car on December 7, 1941. Pearl Harbor Day. So they're going along, talking, and then you know the radio announced comes on, bombing of Pearl Harbor. And the first thing that his grandfather says to his father is, don't tell your mother. <laughs> and I love that story, because World War II would be a hard one to keep out. Don't tell your mother. (laughs) And even though it's a funny story, in one way or another, we all do that. You know, in, in various circumstances. We don't tell ourselves. There's a wonderful poem by Mary Oliver called Beyond the Snow Belt. And in this poem, she writes of a storm a winter storm taking lives, you know, causing deaths, several counties to the north. And she writes, But except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. You know, we hear these reports from two counties north or overseas or from around the world or right within our own communities, within our own relationships. And it's very hard to open to it all, to really hold it with a heart of compassion, to let it in. And it seems to be a function of, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. So the question then, I think for most of us, for all of us, 
is how our hearts can stay open to the magnitude of suffering in the world because it is so huge. Now we're bombarded by so much news, both from distant lands and from near lands and from people close to us. It seems to be just cataloging the range of human suffering. So is it even possible to stay open to it all with compassion? I think this is really a, a very real question. This challenge I see not as a theoretical one. It's not really about a philosophical discussion, you know, about the nature of compassion. Because our task, it's not a question really of admiring the quality of love or compassion, metta. It's not like, you know, it's just admiring these qualities and saying, yeah, that's a good idea. Or cultivating them only in the context of a retreat. Because that also is very limited, even though the retreat is a powerful form for cultivating it. If it's limited to that, it is very limited. Our practice really is about the transformation of our consciousness. How can we transform our consciousness so that we can begin to open both to our own suffering and the suffering of others. That's the challenge for us. The Dalai Lama has good words to this. It's really to the importance of it and to the magnitude of the task. This is not a simple thing. This is not a question of a weak meta-retreat. No, this is, this is a life's work. He wrote, changes in attitudes never come easily. The development of love and compassion is a wide round curve that can be negotiated only slowly, not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. Compassion is not a religious business, it is human business. It is not a luxury. It is essential for our own peace and mental stability. It is essential for human survival. So I think this points to just the tremendous importance and the tremendous challenge of what we're doing, of what we're practicing and cultivating. It's the transformation of our consciousness, the transformation of our hearts. Quite a number of years ago, there was an article in the Harvard Medical Journal about a Tibetan doctor who had been at one time the physician to uh, the Dalai Lama. His name was Tenzin Chodrik. And in 1959, he had been living in Tibet and was imprisoned by the communist Chinese and in prison for 21 years. And he wrote that for 17 of those 21 years, 
he was physically and psychologically tortured daily. You know, and he said, really to the point, each time of death. So this was kind of a horrendous, horrible thing. The article, in the article, it was an interview with him, he described certain points of understanding, certain aspects of wisdom that he said were responsible not only for his survival, because, as we know, people can survive very horrendous conditions in a variety of ways. So the article was about the wisdom which allowed for his, not only his survival, but from his emerging from that ordeal, psychologically and emotionally intact. Sort of emerging with his heart still open and compassionate, not having closed down in hatred and fear. Well, this is a very remarkable accomplishment, and so I think the wisdom he points to is worth paying attention to because, again, this is not a theoretical situation. This is somebody's practice, somebody's life, put to the extreme test. So what can be learned from that, and what did he learn? He said his first insight that helped him emerge, still with an open and compassionate heart, was his ability to understand his situation in a larger context than what was just happening in the moment. He said that he saw that even in the most deplorable of human situations, circumstances, that some human greatness could be accomplished. Now just to have that perspective, that thought, he saw that in the face of tremendous suffering, he still could practice love. He could still practice compassion. Well, that's a tremendous enlargement of the context. So when we translate that into our own lives, hopefully in much less trying circumstances than his, can we remember this? Someone disturbs us or annoys us or irritates us. Is our reaction annoyance? You know, is it judgment? Is it anger? You know, as it often is. Or can we enlarge the context of our particular situation of difficulty? Can we remember to ask the question, in our own situation, even of much less suffering, can we remember to ask, well, in this situation, what kind of human greatness can I accomplish? Now, what quality of heart can be developed? Very often in the Tibetan teachings, and this is something the Dalai Lama has said very often, he said, we should value our enemies because our enemies teach us patience. You know, and this is patience not as some uh, quality of enduring something, This is patience, as I mentioned the other night, 
as the highest form of devotion. You know, it's the profound aspect of patience. This is where it's practiced. This is where it's accomplished. Easy to be patient when everything's going smoothly. It's when we're in the face of difficulty, can we remember that that's an opportunity to practice that quality of openness. That was the first insight he talked of. The second understanding he had, which he said was of such help to him, was seeing that his enemies, his torturers, were human beings just like himself. He saw that the guards in the prison and the tormentors were in adverse situation just as he was because they were creating the karmic conditions for their own great future suffering. Well, this is an amazing ability you know, to, to open and see things in a bigger way, in a wider way. In the midst of so much suffering, he was able to see the commonality of the human condition, the human life. Understanding so deeply the law of karma that actions bring consequences. But what he saw so clearly about that, he understood the law of karma not as a vehicle of revenge, as might not be so unlikely in that circumstance. You know, it's not the thought, well, they'll get theirs. But he understood the law of karma as a vehicle of compassion. Understanding the commonality, you know, of the human existence. And the third insight which he had. He talked of the importance of humility, you know, forgetting about pride, forgetting about self-importance, forgetting about self-righteousness. And he said in the article that he actually attributed his survival to being able to let go of those responses of pride and self-importance and self-righteousness. We see in our own lives, again, in much less difficult situations, just in the ordinary difficulties of our lives, how easily self-righteousness can arise. Just one, we all have many, many stories and examples of this, but one that was very striking for me in my practice was a time when I was in India and in the summer months, we would go up to the mountains. You know, in the plains around Bodh Gaya, it got very, very hot in the summer. Uh, so we would go up to the, the hill stations of the Himalayas. So we rented kind of these little cottages and would be practicing there. So I'd been there, you know, really happy to get out of the heat, beautiful view of the peaks. And then about a few weeks after I got settled in, on a field just below my cottage, um, there was a group called the Delhi Girls who came up and camped out. And it was like a, a 
an Indian paramilitary Girl Scout, you know, kind of like that. And that, I mean, that wasn't a problem. But what they did was to put up these loudspeakers and they were blaring this Hindi film music from morning till night, like from six in the morning to ten at night. Loud. And my mind just went through such a trip about this. You know, here I was, I'd gone to India to get enlightened. And I was practicing hard, I was being diligent. How could they do this to me? You know, and that was, it was just this feeling of intense self-righteous indignation. You know, that, and I couldn't believe that nobody else was bothered by this. <laughs> but it seemed perfectly fine to everybody else, you know, in the community. And I was writing letters to the mayor, in my mind, to the mayor. And the <laughs> but finally, I mean, there was nothing to do about it. You know, it took me weeks. My mind really wouldn't let go of that feeling of, you know, the self-righteousness. But finally, it just wore me down. <laughs> you know, and at a certain point, my mind just let go. It let go of that. It let go of that feeling of self-importance. You know, and... And as soon as I could let go of the feeling, it was fine. You know, it was just sound. It was just music. And it really didn't affect my meditation at all. So tomorrow we thought we would... (laughs) And the last understanding that he wrote about, and the letting go of the importance, self-importance, is one which, you know, we've all heard very often and seems more applicable today than ever. You know, when he said he understood deeply that hatred and violence never cease, never end by more hatred. That that just continues the cycle. And how many places in the world, you know, over these last years have we seen that born out, you know, where groups of people seem to just be caught in an intractable cycle, you know, of hatred, and then a response with hatred, and then more response with hatred. And unless somehow that cycle can be broken, it just perpetuates, and it can perpetuate for many, many years with tremendous suffering. And the Buddha said this 2,500 years ago, and it's, a, it's, it's not an uncommon wisdom. It's just uncommon to apply it. That hatred never ceases by hatred. It only ceases by love. So these are the understandings that we can reflect on in our own lives as we come close to suffering and trying to understand how we can keep our hearts open, whether it's our own suffering or the suffering of others, you know, by enlarging the context. So we're not just caught in the immediacy of what it is that's happening, but we're really able to ask that question, what human greatness, what greatness of heart can be accomplished in this situation? Remembering to ask that question. Understanding the commonality of all beings. 
Now we're all subject to this law of karma. Remembering the value, the importance of humility, of letting go of that feeling of self-importance and realizing that hatred only causes more hatred. So when we're able to bring together these wisdom elements together with the arising of compassion, it really brings a certain kind of magic in our lives and in the world. Because this union of wisdom and compassion help us to go beyond our conventional responses to things. You know, I've heard, I must have heard so many times in different situations people say, well, it's natural to get angry. Now, that's the natural thing to do. Well, I would say it's the normal thing to do. But I'm not sure it's the natural thing to do. Natural meaning in accord with nature, in accord with the Dharma, the highest understanding of Dharma. When we bring love and compassion and wisdom together, it sort of takes us out of our habituated response, maybe our more normal response, and it just opens up other possibilities that may be more skillful. Compassion directed by wisdom can take many different forms. Now, sometimes the compassionate response is very gentle. It's just the most tender response. Years ago, many years ago, I was doing a Zen session with Suzaki Roshi. And for those of you who don't know him, he's still, he's still alive. He's now in his 90s, and he's a very fierce Zen master. And this is when he was younger and more fierce. <laughs> and I wasn't that familiar with the Zen form, you know. But I had come back, and I was just interested in experiencing it. So I do the session, and in that retreat, you, you, see, you see him four times a day. He gives you a koan which is like a, you know, a little problem, a spiritual problem that doesn't have a rational, particularly rational answer. It's really geared to elicit some insight. I was having a really terrible time. I mean, I would go in, he gave me the koan, I would go in four times a day. You know, we'd do our bows, say the koan, I'd give my response, and his response to me was, oh, very stupid. <laughs> yeah, and then he'd ring his bell and I'd bow and leave. <laughs> and then in a good interview, I'd go in, I'd give my response, and he'd say, not bad, but not zen. <laughs> so this was going on four times a day, day after day. I was getting into a total state. I hated going into these things. (laughs) So finally I go in one day and he kind of saw what was happening and he gave me an easier koan. 
and he backed me up. And he said, so how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra? You know, we had been doing chanting every day in the hall. Well, this touched an old, old button in me, going back to the third grade, when our music teacher said, Goldstein just mouthed the words. (laughs) And this is a message that has been reinforced many times (laughs) over the years. So the idea of going in, you know, in this very charged situation, and I was kind of a mess anyway, going in and kind of having to chant in this public, intense situation, so I'm, I'm rehearsing in the sitting. I'm just rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing a million times. Okay, the bell for these interviews rings. I was the last one in. I kind of put it off as long as I could. I go in. I do my bows. I start chanting. It was a total mess. I got the words all wrong. I got the melody wrong. I, so I just felt completely exposed and inside out and vulnerable and horrible, you know. And he just sat there and he looked at me and he simply said, oh, very good. And it was such an incredible moment because because I was so kind of emotionally exposed and felt so open, those simple words just touched my heart. Because my heart was very undefended then, you know, and it was it was such a moment that it's, this is, you know, twenty five years ago already, and it's still even when I think of it, you know, it it evokes that feeling of such incredible compassion and tenderness, and it's just oh, very good. So sometimes compassion takes that form. Sometimes compassion can be very fierce. There are many stories from the Buddha's time, when the Buddha, you know, he was a warrior, and he didn't shrink when it was appropriate from really coming down hard on people compassionately. But in, in a lot of the suttas, you can, you foolish man, what are you, what are you doing? You know, to various monks who were misbehaving. Uh, there are a lot of stories which... <laughs> I'll spare you. But it's to understand that compassion can take many, many forms, and it really has to do with the motivation. You know, we find what the appropriate form is, the appropriate expression. There's, there's a phrase in some schools of Buddhism called wrathful compassion. You know, that if somebody's doing something very harmful, we may need to take a very strong action to stop that harmful action, to help awaken that person to what they're doing. So sometimes it's very soft and tender, and sometimes it has that wrathful aspect. The key is, where is it coming from? What is the motivation? Is it really compassion? For many of us, compassion, I think, may be at the very heart of what we aspire to in our lives. 
as the expression of his enlightenment, the Buddha was known as the compassionate one. He was known as the great physician, the great healer. But I think a lot of care is needed as we begin to explore the meaning and experience of compassion in our lives, the nuances and the possible hidden pitfalls, the possible hidden dangers as we cultivate, as we cultivate this practice. Because the very word compassion, it's like it contains and expresses you know, feelings of openness, of caring, of interconnectedness. So when we hear the word compassion, it's, it's something that we're hard put to find fault with. It's like, I think we would all agree that this is a very great quality. It's possible, though, to idealize compassion, to idealize these feelings and what happens if we do that, we can be content simply with the idea of it. You know, we have this wonderful feeling when we talk about compassion, but we've made it into this great idealistic thing. And maybe we're not actually practicing it. We're just enjoying the idea of it. Or we might judge ourselves for not having enough of it. You know, feeling we're not compassionate enough. Or we might begin taking pride in you know, our more compassionate moments. So these are some of the cautions. You know, we, we really have to come into this practice with a lot of care and a lot of wisdom. As we cultivate this quality in our lives, not simply idealize it as a nice idea, but as we actually cultivate it, we can start very pragmatically with ourselves and with people closest to us. You know, we practice opening in meditation and in our lives to difficulties that are present. We practice opening to the suffering that's present right here and right now. And it might be Opening, as I mentioned, to physical pain. That's a practice of compassion. Can we open to it as we feel pain in the body? Of opening to emotional or psychological pain. Opening to the person of opening to the suffering of that restless person who's sitting next to you. You know, and you're kind of trying to concentrate and send metta. Maybe the person next to you is just making a lot of noise or being disturbing. Right there is the place to open to the suffering that's, that's there. It might be the difficulties of someone that we're very close to. You know, can we open to that rather than avoid or pull back or defend against? The practice of compassion is really the practice of letting things in of being with them, being with the situation just as it is. The great lesson here is that how we respond to people and to situations is really up to us. 
And perhaps you got really a taste of that as you've been working with a neutral and difficult person, that it is actually possible to have and to send and to express loving feeling to somebody who's difficult. It's not because they've become less difficult. It's because how we feel and how we respond is up to us. So that's a tremendous empowering. It's no longer dependent on external situations satisfying us in a certain way. We've taken responsibility for how we feel in a situation that we can develop love and compassion. So it's realizing that what's important is not particularly what it is that's happening, but how we're relating to it. And what's so amazing in the application of this practice that we're doing here is that the more open we can be to our own pain, to our own discomfort, to our own suffering, the more courage we have, the more insight we have, the more ability we have to open to the pain and suffering of others. That's the application of all the work that you're doing here this week. The feeling of compassion really begins with that quality of empathy. You know, an empathy happens, an empathetic response, an empathetic feeling happens when we take the time, when we slow down enough, we stop for a moment and actually feel what it is that's going on in another person. And how often, when we meet somebody and, and you know, greet them and say, how are you? How often are, are we really interested? How often are we really there for that? Or is it just kind of a you know, social convention, social nicety? If we could stop and just let that person in, even for a few moments, before rushing on with our lives. You know, and Sharon spoke about this the other night, that ability to really be present for another person, even for just a few moments, allows for that feeling of empathy to arise. And in situations when people are behaving badly, you know, if you think of all the situations of your difficult persons, you know, where in one way or another, at least in your eyes, people are behaving badly. Can we stop and really look and feel what is happening underneath the behavior? Because almost always what's underneath harmful behavior is some kind of suffering. So what is our response? Is our response just our own reactivity to the behavior? Or is our response an awareness on a deeper level of some kind of suffering and seeing if there's anything we can do to ease the suffering? That's a very different level of relationship and it's not easy to do. It's not easy to remember to do. 
because we get so often caught up in our own reactive judgments. But compassion is also something more than empathy. It's not enough to simply feel the suffering of others. Because compassion also contains within it a very strong motivation to act. It's to do something. And Thich Nhat Hanh expressed this so well. He said, compassion is a verb. Compassion is that acting on that empathetic feeling. And so as compassion grows, we really begin to practice a very active engagement with the world. Now it's not a question of simply sitting back and, you know, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering. It's having that arousing us this feeling of active engagement. There was a book written by a friend of ours. The title is a great title because it really expresses the the juice of compassion. It's the book by Paul Gorman. He wrote, How Can I Help? And so that's the compassionate response. In a situation of suffering, how can I help? We begin to respond to the varying needs of beings in whatever way is appropriate, in whatever way is possible. Now there are very many people in the world and ourselves much of the time where we really are open to the suffering that's there. And we can act and respond in a wide variety of ways. Sometimes it's in very small gestures like Suzaki Roshi saying, very good. You know, sometimes just in our relationships, the compassionate response is being a little kinder, you know, or, or more generous, or more forgiving of the people around us, that that's the compassionate response. A little more challenging Situation and one's an exercise that is not so easy to do, but I found particularly uh, transforming. When you're really having difficulty with someone, see what happens if you give them a gift. You know, if you can touch that place of compassion for the whole situation and your response is to give them a gift. It's quite amazing what often happens when that's our response to someone being difficult. You know, at other times, compassion finds expression in acts of tremendous courage and determination. And we all know, you know, many stories of really great beings mentioned the other night, just, you know, certain examples of because the Dalai Lama always comes to mind, or Martin Luther King. Uh, some years ago, I watched a video, uh, you know, of his life, and they had many clips from uh, his marches. 
And it was astounding. It was just astounding to see him leading a nonviolent march surrounded by a sea of hatred and holding that space, holding that space of love, holding that space of compassion. And it was just so intense and so vivid and so powerful. You know, so sometimes, and there are, there are many beings, you know, can rise to that. I think it's helpful to remember that there is no hierarchy of compassionate action. It's not that one kind of compassionate action is better than another. The field of compassion is limitless because it has to do with the field of suffering beings. So in the cultivation of compassion, we each really find our own way. It can take the form of very active engagement in the world one way or another. It can take the form of cultivating more compassionate response in our relationships. It can take the form of sitting in a cave in the Himalayas. Sitting in solitude and cultivating the compassionate heart. You know, Pascal, he wrote in one of his thoughts, "Most most of the problems in the world would be solved if people could learn to sit quietly in a room. Well, you're all doing your part. (laughs) I mean, sometimes I think, you know, when you read of the stories of the Buddha's past life as a bodhisattva, and, you know, spent many lives as a solitary yogi and hermit, and if we were just looking at a snapshot of that one life, we might think, you know, what's that guy doing to anybody? He's just off in his cave. But we often bring such a limited perspective to seeing what's really going on, when we can see that that work was part of a much longer journey of awakening from which countless beings have benefited in the most immeasurable ways. So compassionate action takes many forms. And we each find our own, and we go in and out, times of solitude and times of engagement. One is not more compassionate than the other. As many manifestations. So all in our own way, we plant this wonderful seed, this wonderful seed of compassion within us, the kind heart. And over time, I think, it grows into being the guiding principle of our lives. We really hold this as the principle as we relate to other people, as we engage in the world. And even at those times when we're not acting from a compassionate place, because often we won't, and we're not yet fully enlightened saints, most of us. So even when we find that we're not still having it as the reference point, having planted the seed The value of compassion 
reminds us, even in those times when we're not acting from those place, that place, it reminds us that there are other choices. And that's a powerful recognition. I'll just close with one teaching which in one way sums all of this up. It said, let those who desire Buddhahood not train in many dharmas, but only one. Which one? Great compassion. Those with great compassion possess all the Buddha's teachings as if in the palm of their hand. This is the power of learning to open our hearts in this way. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. May the merit of all our practice be dedicated to peace and understanding in this world. May it be dedicated to the welfare and the happiness and the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.